So today we come to the last in our series from Isaiah 61, where we've been uh, looking at this great Old Testament prophecy that looks forward to the coming uh, of a Messiah. And uh, so we come to the end of this series, Anointed, and this morning we're going to be looking at the last verse from Isaiah 61, verse 11. And so I'm just going to read it to you. And uh, it will come up on the screen behind me. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is what it says. For as the earth produces its growth, and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Just going to read that again. For as the earth produces its growth... And as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, which is living and active. We thank you that your the God who is alive and speaks today. You speak into our world, into our church, and into our personal lives. And so, Father, we want to uh, have our ears unstopped today, our ears open to what you're saying. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us today? Reveal Jesus to us, we pray. Amen. So as I said, we've come to the last in our series, Anointed. We're unpacking this great prophecy, uh, which foretells the deliverance of God's people from exile in Babylon. It was written uh, in the day, in the moment, to a people uh, who uh, were uh, going into exile, would soon be in exile, and it was to encourage them that there was hope on the horizon. Yet, as is often the case with biblical prophecy... Uh, we've seen that over these last weeks that there's such a, uh, such a bigger story. Isaiah 61 is promising the coming of a Messiah who will deliver all of God's people from every generation once and forever. And this last verse points towards the fulfillment of God's great plan. The restoration of all that Adam lost. The fruit of all that Jesus Christ has won. And the splendor of all that lies ahead for God's people. God's promise is that all the nations will see it come to pass. As Isaiah ends this chapter... He ends using an analogy of a fruitful garden. It conjures an image of stunning color, of variety of plants, of life springing up at every turn. And this motif, this analogy of a garden runs through the Bible from beginning to end. Tim touched on this when he uh, spoke on the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 several months ago. 
And so today, I want to, again, I want us to follow this theme as we draw out what God wants to say to us. And my title for what I'm going to be sharing this morning is A New Paradise. Why paradise? For those of you who are perhaps literary buffs, uh, you will immediately go maybe to uh, John Milton's classic 17th century poem, Paradise Lost, which is loosely based around uh, the, uh, uh, the sin coming into God's perfect creation and ruining it and how that happened. The word paradise is found four times in the Bible. And the word paradise actually comes from a Persian word. And it means a walled parkland. Paradise means it, it, it's talking about a walled parkland that is, has got uh, grassland areas. It's got beautiful trees growing fruit. It's got rivers flowing through it. It conjures. That's the image the word is meant to conjure up. It speaks of a place of security of fruitfulness, a place of joy. And we're going to follow this theme of gardens through the Bible as we look at four gardens and we're going to unpack and uh, all uh, what God is promising through Isaiah. And so we're going to start by briefly looking at the first garden. In the first garden, we're going to just read a few verses from uh, Genesis chapter 2. And this is what they say. Verse 8. The Lord planted a garden in Eden. The Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he placed the man he had formed. God planted it and he placed men and women in the garden. Then verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. The first garden. I don't know how many of you love gardens. We've got a group in the church, uh, that, a gardening group, and they love meeting together. And as they meet together, they talk about gardens and plants and talk about Jesus as well. But this was God's garden. Uh, uh, my wife Annie loves gardening. She would say, I threw the trowel in on gardening years ago. It's a terrible pun, isn't it? <laughs> and Annie, when she talks about it, sometimes she, she comes in and she, she tells me about what's going on in the garden and uh, all the plants that are, start to spring forth. She talks about delphiniums and uh, and, and I'm, when she starts to talk and she uses names like that, I, I'm sort of, I'm not sure whether she's actually speaking in tongues and we need an interpretation, or she's actually talking about plants, you're never quite sure. And, and, but she loves the garden. She absolutely loves it. She loves walking in the garden. She loves spending time in the garden. She so enjoys the beauty of creation. Eden was God's garden. And God loved his garden. It was the perfect place to live and flourish. God gave Adam and Eve authority to bring order to the garden. 
In Genesis chapter 1, it uses the words rule and subdue. This was a garden that was fit, but it needed uh, someone to work it. And so God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work his garden. A garden he was delighted in. And here they enjoyed fellowship with God as they walked in the cool of the day, we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Here they worshipped God through what they said, through their words. But more than that, they worshipped God by what they did as they uh, obeyed God and worked his garden and worked in the garden. They honoured God and worshipped God through their relationship with him and with each other. It was a beautiful place. We have been created to worship God and to love him forever. Adam and Eve's relationship with God was intimate. They walked in the presence of a holy God. They they were righteous. They had right standing. They were able to walk in the presence of a God who knew no sin. They were able to be in his presence. It was perfect. It was paradise. And sadly, we all know what happened next. They disobeyed. God had given them the freedom of the garden. They could eat. They could go anywhere they wanted. They could eat of any tree, bar one. Bar one. They had the freedom of the garden. And they believed, they chose to believe the devil's lie, that if you eat the fruit of the tree that God had said they shouldn't eat from, they believed the lie that they would not die. The sad thing is, they did. They may not have died straight away physically, but they died in that moment spiritually to God. Their relationship with God was broken. And God had to put them out of his garden. Their relationship with God was broken by their sin. And we, Paul tells us, have inherited that sin. Each one of us is born with That sin, that rebellion, that disobedience towards God, that unwillingness to submit our lives to him. All of us live, have lived like that. And no longer can we flourish and rule over God's creation. And suffering, hardship, and pain entered God's world. And God put them out of his garden away from his holy presence. And yet the amazing thing is, the amazing story of the Bible is right from that moment, God was at work to redeem the situation. We see the mercy of God at work as he promises a way back to restore what Adam had lost. And in Isaiah 58 verse 11, Isaiah prophesies, says, God says this, the Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land and strengthen your bones. You will be like, you will be like a well-watered garden and like a spring whose water never runs dry. God's promising there's a way back. This promise hung over his people throughout and beyond Israel's time in exile. And Isaiah 61 verse 11 is promising a return to paradise. The way back would involve a second Adam who would pay the price for where the first Adam failed. And for centuries, God's people waited for the promise 
of this coming Messiah. And then we're told at just the right time, a kairos moment, a God-appointed moment, God sends his son to restore and redeem what was lost. Jesus, as we've seen over these coming weeks, these last weeks, we've seen in Luke chapter 4, he quotes these verses from Isaiah chapter 61 and he says, today these are fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to fulfill the great promise of Isaiah. He came to deal with our sin once and for all. He came to deal with our suffering, our pain, and our hardship. All that has ruined God's beautiful world. But the return to paradise would come at great cost. And we see that in the second garden. The garden of suffering. So when God drove Adam and Eve out of Eden... Life became hard. They were prevented from returning. We all experience that fall from grace on a daily basis. Each one of us know what it is to sin and get things wrong before God. To face temptation. To sometimes give in to it. To experience frustration, hardship, fruitlessness, pain, suffering, sickness. We know this world is no paradise. But our redemption is found in Jesus' suffering. We're told in John chapter 18, verse 1, after Jesus said these things, talking to his disciples, this is the night before he's crucified, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Mark calls the garden Gethsemane. Gethsemane means the garden of the olive press. The picture you've seen there was a, a photograph I took when I was, had the privilege of going to Jerusalem some years ago. That's uh, the garden of Gethsemane. That's what they call the garden of Gethsemane. There's a church in it at, at this time. Gethsemane actually means the garden of the olive press. And the picture you see here is uh, an old olive press. That's they pressed olives to get the beautiful olive oil out. But you had to press the olives to get the oil out. And here in Gethsemane, Jesus starts to carry the weight and the pressure of all our sin that he might fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. In the garden... He was under such agony of soul, we're told he sweat drops of blood. The medical term for it is hematidrosis, bleeding from sweat glands, capillaries that, that burst, rupture, and blood flows out with sweat under extreme pressure, under extreme stress. And as the weight of our wrongdoing, our sin, our rebellion bore down on Jesus, he begins to shed his blood, culminating in him shedding his blood on the cross where he died for us. Jesus died the death each one of us deserve. He resisted the temptation to give in where Adam failed. 
And if we're going to follow him, we're told there's a cost. There's a cost not to suffer as he did. There's only one who could bear our sin. He paid the price for our sin on the cross once for all, we're told in Hebrews. God's righteous anger is completely satisfied. We are forgiven. And yet the consequence of following Jesus involves suffering. Jesus himself said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He gives us the privilege and challenge of sharing his sufferings. You see, history says following Jesus isn't easy. We should expect hardships, but we should rejoice in them. We should rejoice that we are worthy to face hardship for his name. We live in a world that is anti-God and hates Jesus. Maybe that's our battle. Maybe we're battling with great opposition at the moment and we're fearful and maybe in work we shy away sometimes from being associated with Jesus. I was reading something this week in John chapter 18. You see, Jesus is arrested in this garden, the garden of suffering, and he's taken to the high priest. And the disciples, for Peter follows. Peter has promised the night before that he will never deny Jesus. And yet we see Peter in the high priest's courtyard as Jesus starts to be interrogated. Peter is warming himself around the fire, we read in John chapter 18, verse 18. And then Peter's worst nightmare unfolds. In John chapter 18, verse 26, we read this. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Three times, Peter denies he knows Jesus. Peter is terrified of, of identifying with Jesus in the garden of suffering. Maybe that's us. Maybe we are fearful of associating with Jesus. Maybe we, like Peter, have shied away from telling people about our association with him. Maybe we feel that we've let Jesus down by the way we've behaved and the things we've said. The good news is that Jesus hadn't finished with Peter. And he, we read at the end of John about how he restores him and he comes to him and he's, he asks him a question. Do you really love me? And if that's you this morning, if you know that you feel you've disappointed, you've been a, you feel that you've been a disappointment to Jesus, all Jesus does is come and ask you, do you really love me? Do you really love me? And all Peter can say is yeah, yes. Jesus then calls him to look after his followers. Jesus is looking for a simple yes. 
For Peter, church history tells us that he shared in Jesus, got to share in Jesus' sufferings in life and in death from that day forward. There's a cost to following Jesus. Is he the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price for you? Matthew tells us, Jesus tells this parable about this pearl of great price that's worth giving up everything to acquire. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He's worth everything. I want to tell you that I have had the privilege of following him these last 30 or so years. Since I was 23, God grabbed hold of me as a messed up 23-year-old. It has been, it's been hardship, it's been difficult, but I tell you, he is still the treasure in the field. He is still worth it all. He's still worth everything. The garden of suffering. The garden of suffering leads us to, thirdly, the secret garden. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 23. This is a, a, a moment where Jesus is on the cross and he's got two thieves either side of him. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Extraordinary words. Extraordinary words. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. If you've seen the film Gladiator, Maximus Decimus Meridius, as he is dying at the end of the film, he has this, it's sort of, you're not sure whether it's real or it's a dream, but he sees a, a wooden door in a wall. And beyond that door are the Elysium fields, Roman mythology. That's just mythology. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin, he scorned the shame, and he gives us a glimpse into his secret garden. This thief who's been crucified next to Jesus has an epiphany, has a moment of revelation. Hours earlier, he, alongside the other thief on the other side of Jesus, had been mocking Jesus, insulting him. That's what we read in Mark chapter 15. And yet, a few hours later, something has happened. Just, Jesus didn't say much on the cross, but in those moments of his suffering, this thief had an epiphany. This is the Messiah. And at the last, he sees Jesus for who he is. He doesn't have any time to put anything right. He has no opportunity to ask forgiveness for those he's robbed or hurt. He can do nothing to save himself. All he can do is cry out to Jesus for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response, Jesus' response to the cry of every heart that comes to him for mercy is today, you will be with me in paradise. The thief does nothing. 
Jesus does everything. He opens the door to paradise to a repentant sinner. We're told in John's gospel that Jesus, Jesus himself says, he is the door, he is the gate, he is the way in. There is only one way into God's presence and it is through Jesus Christ. And so that's why we celebrate and rejoice and declare the name of Jesus. There is only one name under heaven by which we might be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And if you have... You're here this morning and you've never done that. Maybe you're here as a teenager, you've never done it. Let me tell you that Jesus will receive you and accept you. He will open the door to you. There's only one story of a a, a last death, just before death conversion in the Bible. This is the only one, the thief on the cross. And it's there to remind us that none of us should take our days for granted because none of us know what's going to happen. Today is the day of salvation. Don't miss the opportunity. But there is one so that none of us should ever think that we have been too bad that God would receive us. This thief had no hope and yet Jesus saved him. Three days after Jesus' dead body has been placed in Joseph of Arimathea's unused garden tomb. Jesus' body is taken off the cross and it's taken to a garden tomb and it's laid in an unused tomb. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. And we read of how Mary Magdalene comes to embalm his body, puts spices on his body, but finds it's gone. She's distraught. Suddenly, she comes face to face with Jesus, and she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. Jesus is in his garden. He's out. He's alive. He's alive forevermore. And he encounters, and he just says one word, Mary. And in that moment, she knows it's him. He knows her. He knows her past. He knows her present. He knows her future. She stands before the one who knows her. I want to tell you today, you stand before one who knows you. He knows your name. Nobody else may remember your name. He knows your name. He remembers you. He knows your past. He knows your failings. He knows your mistakes. He knows your present. He knows what you're going through. He knows what your future is and what it holds. And he calls you by name. And Mary's response is to worship him and tell everyone she meets, I've seen the Lord. Same thing happened to Peter. Peter, ever after, Those moments of fear of God ever after. I have seen the Lord. I have met Jesus. The challenge to us is will we bow the knee and worship him? Because there is a door into a secret garden. The last garden we read about is in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7.
This is a letter that John, we heard uh, uh, Joel reading from the first chapter. The first chapter of Revelation is, is Revelation means the unveiling. It's, it's, it's an apocalyptic book. It's telling uh, us uh, what happens at the end of time. It's revealing Jesus to us, the risen Christ, the glorious Lord Jesus not just the one who walks as a man in the garden, but the one who's standing and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, in all his glory. And one day he is coming back, and he's going to take us back to a last garden, the last garden, the return to paradise. And as John writes this revelation that he is given by the Spirit, he, in chapters 2 and 3, he writes to seven churches in Asia Minor. And those churches would have been churches that John knew because he was involved in those churches. Uh, history tells us that John was probably in the church in Ephesus for a long period. And now John is on, is on the Isle of Patmos. He's, uh, he's in exile for Jesus' name. He's been taken there because he was declaring about Jesus. And this church in Ephesus was one that, that the Apostle Paul had planted and we uh, we read how the church starts in the book of Acts, and then we read Paul's great letter to the church in Ephesians. And it's a glorious letter. And John is now writing another letter, 35, about 35 years later. And he's writing to this church, this church that had uh, just been such an example to all churches in Asia Minor. And what John says, what Jesus says that John records is really challenging. The seven letters are all encouraging in places and challenging in places. These letters, most commentators, and I believe are relevant to every church in every generation. In chapters, chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, he writes to the Ephesian church. And he says he knows their deeds, their hard work, and their perseverance as his followers. And yet he leaves them with this challenge. They have forsaken their first love for him. They've lost their first love. They're working hard. They're battling for truth. But they're no longer passionate about the one who gave himself for them. And Jesus challenged them is not to stop working hard but is to repent and turn to their first love. And if they do this, Jesus promises this, verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, the garden of God. It's so easy to lose our way. Just to be going through the motions, working hard, doing stuff in the church, persevering, gritting our teeth. The question is this Have we lost our first love? Is Jesus the focus of our gaze? When we get up on a Monday morning, is he the focus of our gaze? Is he the song in our hearts? Is he the treasure that we 
will still give up everything for. Jesus says if we love him, we'll obey what his father says. Do our daily lives reflect our worship of God, our love of Jesus? God says we can't love him if we don't believe in Jesus. We can't love him if we don't live to please him by doing what he says. We can't love him if we don't love those around us. What's our relationship with one another like? Have we lost our first love? It's the challenge to us today as we come into land this morning. Have we lost our first love? Do we love Jesus? Are we as passionate about him now as we were at the beginning? It's so easy to find ourselves drifting. So easy to find our hearts becoming hard. You see, the promise of Isaiah chapter 61 verse 11 is that as, just as a seed eventually bears fruit and in the garden life brings up, so God will cause righteousness and praise through people who've put their trust in Jesus to spring up that people all around, the nations will see. That's the promise. And so, if the seed is in your heart, allow God to water it by his spirit. Stir yourself again. Remember your first love. Remind yourself of your first love. Wow, I used to be so passionate. I used to get up and pray, read my Bible. I used to do... The things you used to do what you did at first. Stir yourself again. He is worth it. He is worthy. There is a day coming, it says in Philippians chapter 2. And it says that God has given him a name, Jesus, a name which is above every name. This is what it says. God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name. The name that we were singing this morning is the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus is above every name. The name of Jesus changes everything. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. going to ask the band to come and join me up here. And I want us in this moment just to, as the band are preparing, I just want us to reflect on what God is saying to us this morning. Maybe you know that you feel that you've let him down and disappointed him and you've not stood up clearly for him. You've been a little like Peter in the garden. Know this, that he wants to restore you today. He wants you, he, he's just asking you, do you love me? That's all he wants to hear. He's just looking for you to declare, I love you, Lord Jesus. He knows when we make mistakes. He knows we get things wrong. He knows we disappoint him. He, we, he never disappoints us even though we disappoint him all the time. He wants us to be those who share in, have the privilege of sharing in his sufferings. He wants us to be those who put our trust in Jesus. If you've never done that today, you can do that as we come to worship. Jesus, I give you my life. 
Jesus, remember me. Remember me. It's not complicated. Jesus, remember me. I want to put my trust in you. Looking to you to save me. And maybe we're here this morning. We've just been going through the motions. We've been working hard in the garden. We've been digging. We've been planting. But it's just hard work. And we're not enjoying the fruit of being Jesus, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God. We're just working hard. We've lost our first love. He's calling us to return to him. Say, Jesus, I love you. I worship you. Let's just stand together. I'm going to pray.